0: Welcome to The Haver Show. I'm Tom Haver Show, as always, joined by my man, Amin el Hassan over there. Are you falling asleep? You're tweeting. You're putting out content right now. I'm putting out
1: content, man. It's, it's hard. I got to tag people. Is it cool to tag DMX? Should I not tag DMX? I don't know. I don't know. What What are the protocols on this, man?
0: I don't even know. <laughs> does DMX have a handle on Twitter?
1: He does on Instagram.
0: That's Amin el Hassan from Levitard Show and uh, SiriusXM NBA Radio. And we are joined by our guy. <laughs> Way back in the day, OG, that's right. ESPN True <laughs>
1: Hoop, Bobby Kennedy. True Hoop
0: TV live show. Big Was.
2: What's up my man? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Obviously, I'm super happy to be here. People who don't know Amin and and, and Tom are You know, I look up to these guys straight up and down. Don't do this. They inform so much of what I'm doing right now, just being... Don't do this. ...mega fans of these cats. Even though these guys are my friends and I talk to them every day, I'm listening to every single Habit Show episode, right? I'm still fans of these guys. And before I became friends with them, I was fans of both. And so it's just amazing to be doing what I'm doing have the relationship
1: that I have with these guys, so obviously I'm happy to be here today, man. Is it repetitive? Given that we talk about the shit in the chat, and then we just basically record what we talked about in the chat. <laughs>
0: yeah. Like
1: you feel like, ah,
2: eh, it's a nice recap. No, it's not repetitive because the chat, you know, this is a different tenor to what we do in the chat. I think <laughs> a
1: different tenor <laughs> than what we're doing
2: right now. I think that the tone is a little different <laughs> than what is said in our private chat. God forbid. I don't
0: think we need to uh, leverage the chat. I think is what you're trying to say.
2: Yeah, Julian Assange, please don't get us.
0: (laughs) Don't do it. Waz is at The Athletic, NBA voice at The Athletic, also a culture writer, overseeing a lot of the culture vertical that you're seeing, pop culture at The Athletic. It's a new thing they're doing at the, I love the content. You just did this new sneaker drop every Friday. Man, The the Athletic keeps growing outside of just the the strict, like on court, on field stuff. And you're kind of behind all of that.
2: Yeah, it's funny, man, because I actually, when I got hired, when I talked to Dan Kaufman and I talked to Sergio and I talked to David, I was like, yo, man, you guys don't have anybody like me over there. (laughs) And I think you need somebody like me. And what I mean is that I do have these interests that are adjacent to the NBA, right? That are, if you take a holistic view of the NBA, you know that, you know, LeBron is doing a movie. The sneaker industry is adjacent to the NBA industry, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so I want to come from the perspective of, Talking about the NBA more holistically and stuff that isn't just lineup data, Whoa. pick and roll coverages, Whoa. trade packages. Wow. Whoa.
1: Wow.
0: <laughs> no. wow. Shot across the foul there,
1: Yeah, that's yeah it is. Yeah.
0: How condescending is it dripping out of your mouth right now?
2: No, I said they have people who are incredible at that. Obviously, I'm a fan of that type of work, Tom, as you know, because I'm a fan of your work. And so I was like, I want to bring something different to the fore. And they didn't have that. They were just basically being amazing at all all the stuff that I just highlighted, right? Like, what's a fair compensation for a blockbuster superstar deal? Or who's actually playing the best defense and who's just having three-point defense luck? Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, like, when
0: P.J. Tucker gets traded to the Milwaukee Bucks, everyone's like, oh, look, they can go small and, like, he can spot from the corner (laughs) guard, like, versatility. And you're like, yeah, let's talk about his shoe game, though. Where is he going to put all his shoes? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Exactly.
2: Exactly. And so, they empowered me to do that. And I think because the company is so analytically based, because the founders do come from a tech background, a lot of the stuff that they care about is data. And what they notice is that people do like the human interest stuff too. People like the stuff that isn't hardcore nuts and bolts. Those things do numbers too. And they decided to invest in that and uplift people whose concentration is not just on court, Minutia, if you will so it was you know that's what i've been doing and then as they've been grown they've asked me to be a part of all the stuff that's happening with culture because let's face it tom i am culture <laughs> and so that's why that's why it's just been a natural fit to be doing that over there but yeah i'm excited about it
0: i just listened to bomb the podcast you do with a mean talking about dmx you had elite on the elite, elite, elite. Mm-hmm. I'm learning is how I have to describe them. Yes, yes, sir. And you guys talk about DMX. And I remember Trey, our guy Trey was talking about halfway through the pod about how DMX not invented the layup line hype songs or that genre. Sure. But I distinctly remember feeling like I could jump six inches higher in layup lines when DMX was playing.
2: Yeah, when
0: Party Up. I felt like on the podcast, you guys you guys actually talked about a lot of how how new DMX was and how this wasn't Puff or Jay-Z. This was like a totally new voice and energy. This is the opposite. And then I feel like anyone who was playing basketball in the late 90s or in 98, 99, 2000, 2001, their soundtrack to the basketball scene was a lot of DMX.
2: Yeah, 100%. I mean, Party Up or What's My Name or Rough Riders Anthem or even X gonna give it to you. These are all songs that lived within the greater culture. DMX was—he was that. He—you could play his stuff at parties. He made party records. He made hype songs for guys like us who were had our little hoop dreams at the time. But he also could get really introspective about drug abuse, about growing up super poor, about being imprisoned at eight years old until he was like thirteen, about being homeless. All of that stuff. He talked about some real, real deep stuff. Right. And I think he spoke to people who because, you know, let's face it, in America, a lot of people (laughs) a lot of people are going through that. Unfortunately, you know, we don't take care of our people the way that we should. So some people kind of slip through the societal cracks. And so the craziest thing about DMX and people always cite that. He dropped those two number one albums in one year. And that was a crazy feat. But to me, the craziest part about it, he did that while on crack. (laughs) While addicted to crack. (laughs) Who was on crack? It's true, though. Like, I'm not saying that to be facetious here. Like, it's the actual truth, like, that he could achieve all of this stuff artistically and commercially and generate close to $100 million. He didn't generate all of that for himself, but he's generating revenue. This is back when CDs cost damn near $18 a pop. You know what I'm saying? And that's not even to talk about the touring and all of that. So for him to be able to generate all of that bread while being afflicted by this disease, he's a superhero for that. Who was on crack? I don't think his art is looked at the same way that people view certain stuff from Nas and Jay-Z or even Biggie's first two albums or whatever. You know, like the chronic or doggy style. I don't think people resonate with his bodies of work the way some of those seminal rap records, but... Some of the songs, the sing singles that he put out will live literally forever. It's just amazing.
0: I remember when Doggy Style came out and I mean what year was that? Ninety three or four. So I'm like eight seven years old. And I remember the album Jacket was just a bunch of dog porn. Yeah. <laughs> It's anthropomorphic, dogs, and it was just crazy, right? Legendary album. And I remember my (laughs) older brother, so I have an older brother who's seven years older than me, and I have another older brother who's four years older than me, and they fucking played this album nonstop. And so I'm a kid, and I'm like flipping through this album cover and just like flipping through the pages, and I'm like, What's this all about? And like, I think the birds and the bees talk that I was supposed to have with my parents happened right there in my like, my brother's bedroom. Wow! <laughs> like flipping through <laughs> doggy style. Like that album was crazy, but also has a special place in my heart because of that that moment of not understanding what all this was about.
2: One hundred, one hundred percent. So yeah, that's not to say like it's dark and hell is hot. It isn't to me? I, it's not an album that I don't love. Like I listened to it on Friday. I saw the news while I was in Starbucks, and I started crying. I had to leave and I'm walking home and I'm playing It's Dark As Hell is Hot and, and I'm like, man, this guy, throughout the week, you hear that he's in the hospital, I'm just like, he's gonna get out. He's gonna get he's gonna be fine, he's gonna get out, and then the news finally drops and it kinda all hits you like the impact of this guy. And then also, you know, it made me think about the people who his music actually resonated with the most because I happen to be, like, somebody who had a pretty nice upbringing. I generally have a sunny disposition. The whole, like, fighting demons and darkness is not really my bag, right? So his music didn't grab me the way that it grabbed some other people who completely and utterly... That, that stuff resonated with them and how they feel on a day-to-day basis. So I did, I thought about those people too. Like, man, like this guy was able to speak to people who are going through some of the worst shit you can go through in your life, right? Whether it is extreme poverty or addiction or, you know, abuse or whatever. He's just a special, special, special artist, man. It's, it's hard to overstate that shit. And again, this guy was the biggest rap star in the freaking world, and he wasn't talking about Benzes and and Rolexes and all of that, which was the norm at that time. He was talking about something completely opposite of that in the content of his music. Yes, he was also talking about, like, I will rob and steal because I have to. I, I can't eat. If I don't, I'm not going to eat tonight. Because I want to, because I have to. have to. <laughs> and, and so, you know, but yeah, he's just a special cat.
0: I mean, was it you or was it Wise who was talking about how you can't play Rough Riders Anthem in the club because it's just...
2: It was Get At Me Dog when that first came out. That was banned. People would mosh pit whenever the song would come on in clubs, in nightclubs. Like, I'm talking about fights and elbows. Like, this song, people would go nuts to it, and literally club owners and managers would tell DJs, you cannot play that song in here. People are ripping up furniture, breaking chairs over people's heads, bottles and all of that. Mosh pit culture, which is funny, too, And I don't think a lot of people realize this. Odd Future, a lot of their appeal was they was the first guy since DMX to bring mosh pit culture sort of back to rap. I would say 3-6
1: Mafia or is that just 3-6 too. Three, six, two. Too much at the same time.
2: Yeah, 3-6 was at the same time. 3-6 was even yeah.
1: before DMX, right? And again- Not when they mattered. <laughs> not, not when they exactly. mattered. Nobody, nobody gives a shit when they were playing for fucking the Chitlin circuit.
2: <laughs> well, but they were legends in Memphis already by 1998. So, Ooh, you know, wow. so I get it. They they, they definitely are Ooh. part of the Mosh Pit culture but our future was the first guy since that little time yeah.
1: period. Since that era, yeah.
2: Where like their whole thing when they're playing at a festival I remember I seen them at a festival and there were several freaking circles. There were chicks in there throwing elbows at people. And I was like, wow, this must have been what it was like during the DMX era where his songs would come on and people would just literally start fighting each other.
0: I don't understand it. What is it about DMX's music that makes you so fired up?
2: It's him. Yeah. He's such an intense personality. Like, it's him. It's literally his essence. Like, it's so intense that you are feeling it through his music.
1: To the Haber Show listeners who don't listen to Bomb, go ahead and check it out. Because we had Elite, as we said, who's a friend. But, you know, more importantly to this episode, he's a guy that was in Rough Riders. And he witnessed some of the stuff on the tail end of, of DMX's kind of star burning through the sky. And he tells a story about being in Kansas, and they're just hanging out outside their hotel in Kansas, the middle of nowhere, in the middle of the night. And so people walk by us, and DMX took pictures of them, and they were like, he says, what are you guys doing? I said, well, we're going to go get sushi. He said, all right, let's go. <laughs> if you listen to that full story, that's a great example of what Waz is talking about, like that personality and that intensity but also...
2: Mix them with the, like a very softness, yeah. T-
1: it's not even softness, it's a positivity, right? Like, that's the crazy thing. This dude who ro- robs about robbing people and killing people and also <laughs> prison style... S- He'll go s- with fans to eat sushi and pay for their meal. Yeah, it's just an all-around nice guy that everybody loved.
0: man. I mean, I saw a video on the on the Timeline about him and meeting Rakim. Well, now even be
2: smiling because
0: I'm cheesing uh, like... <laughs> <laughs> real, real...
2: Yo, man, what, what did Rakem mean to you in hip hop? What does he mean to you? Rakem, yo, growing up, right, there was always a conflict on who was the best rapper. It was between Big Daddy Kane and Rakem. I always went with Rakem, always, you know what I'm saying? He was serious, you know what I'm saying? He didn't compromise his lyrics, you know what I mean? Went hard and didn't even curse. What? that's the shit that like that's what the hell like wow this nigga's pissing can't shit in your purse you know can't get this sexy chocolate person talking and shit I you
0: you can't even <laughs> you know, do too, too much you can't know, too much you know, too much you him i i always always with always always always, wow. always, always, wow. always your biggest fan this is my idol <laughs> yeah and it was so cool to see it was like if we had film a LeBron seeing Michael or LeBron right. like, eating magic for the first time it was like watching that and being like yo the human side of dmx is i think the most interesting and most gravitating characteristic of his music is it felt raw and like how often were rappers going and speaking to religion as much as DMX did.
2: Not that explicitly. I think most rappers are Christians, but it's not as explicit. You'll just vaguely hear about God. But DMX's whole thing was, he felt like he found some measure of salvation from all of the crazy things that were happening in his life by having a connection to God and being a Christian. So it was at the forefront of his music from the start. He has a joint on the first album called, literally called The Prayer, you know, he would open his shows up with a prayer, crying on stage, dude, like, damn near on a nightly basis, just talking about he's praying for other people. He wants to take on the burdens of others to ease their their pains and their sufferings. This dude was a deeply spiritual and deeply just generous guy. Like, that's what he thought about, Right. Just how his career was, but yes, most rappers will say they believe in God or whatever, but they're not doing it as explicitly as DMX was doing it at all.
0: And he had real longevity too. Like I remember going into Cavs Celtics locker room in like 2009 2010 in Boston. I was doing a story about like why charges are valuable, which at the time was like a cutting edge story. <laughs> it was the first locker room I'd ever been in, and I remember walking into the Cavs locker room and seeing Shaq. This is Shaq with LeBron and Shaq was like enormous. He was talking to Jackie Mack and I thought Jackie Mack was like five, two, five, three talking to Shaq. And then she steps out and Jackie <laughs> Ma- is like six, one, right?
2: Yeah. She's an Amazon.
0: <laughs> she's an <laughs> enormous. And I'm like, Oh my God, Shaq is so tall. He dwarfs everybody. And then all I hear is like some dude in the back getting taped up. And I think he was rapping to uh get at me dog. I turn and it's LeBron and this is 2010. Of course. Yeah. This is a decade after that song came out and still I mean 1998
2: would have been right in LeBron's wheelhouse for being a young impressionable kid. If you was LeBron's age in 98, there's no way you didn't interact with DMX's everything. Like to me that tracks, right? Like cuz when DMX was Taking over the world. That's prime years of LeBron had to be like what fourteen in ninety eight. Yeah. <laughs> fourteen year old person hearing Rough Riders Anthem and Get At Me Dog and all of that stuff for the first time ever is gonna come on, that's gonna that's gonna blow your mind, dude.
0: <laughs> all right. I mean, best hype song on the court, like layup lines. I
1: don't know if it's the best one, but this is the one as soon as you texted the ass. It's the intro from Dark and Hell is Hot, because I'll never forget when Mike Tyson came out to that song. That was crazy. Tyson entering to some scary, imposing music. Will he be able to intimidate his opponent tonight? Will it even matter? The crazy part was I'd never heard that song. I'd heard the album, but because if you look at the intro... It's just him talking. And, you know, I used to skip them shits. So I was like, get to the music, right? Right. And I've heard the, the next song was Rough Riders Anthem. So I always thought Rough Riders Anthem was the first song in that album.
2: First song in the album.
0: <laughs> intro is could be its own song. Like, intro is unbelievable.
2: It was. Yeah. It's a great, great record. I mean, for me, of course, I was in high school from 01 to 05. So
0: peak era of 8 Mile, Lose Yourself, that's just classic. Like... Every high schooler, you just gave me so much cover to mention some Eminem songs here. Thank
2: you. Every high schooler in that era definitely warmed up to to lose yourself. Lose
1: yourself was fucking corny because it wasn't like the players wanted; it's like the schools, like, "Hey guys, come on, let's let's get hype for the game. Lose yourself in the moment." Yeah, <laughs> but it was
2: played. <laughs> so lose yourself, definitely, Fifty Cent. 03 is when it was like the freaking huge explosion, not dissimilar to DMX's own, probably five years before that. What up Gangster and and Many Men yeah. and the whole thing, the whole freaking first 50 album, the whole
0: That's another classic for LeBron, by the way.
2: Get Richard Die Trying. There's so many songs on there that would get us going. But definitely, what up Gangster was definitely one of the biggest joints.
1: Do we get a LeBron DMX tribute? Instagram from the back of his Maybach. He just acts like, oh, it just happened to come on and I'll just rhyme every word. Right, right,
2: right, right. Half the time he don't know half the words.
0: <laughs> <laughs> See, I knew I knew his DMX when he was rapping back in twenty ten because there's just a lot of growling and barking so I was like oh he's,
2: he's doing to get back." yeah shouts to LeBron Sprinter man we all need a Sprinter in our lives shout out to LeBron reading so
0: you're holding the autobiography of Malcolm X along with Alex Haley I don't know how far you are into the book but what's your biggest takeaway so far
1: um, I kind of just started a couple of days ago um, but um,
0: I've read in a, lot of, a lot of notes over the years um, it's my first time actually reading this from start to finish um, but just a very um, very smart man Very, very, very smart, man. I wrote down five songs here. You said Eminem, Lose Yourself. Till I Collapse was on our playlist when we played. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. That's a good one. (laughs) That's a classic. Still Dre.
2: Still Dre. Another great
1: one.
0: What's my name? Well, DMX, what's my Because the first 30 seconds of that song, like, you want to. <laughs> so intense. <laughs> so
2: intense.
0: So intense.
2: And I always thought of that song as like a football song. Like, I just imagine Ray Lewis creaming somebody going up down the middle <laughs> to that freaking song. Come on.
0: <laughs> I don't know if I can hit the right pitch. I mean, can you do a good DMX? Can you hit the come on before the drop in that? When he gets high pitch, I can't,
1: come on! I can't, I can't quite get it. Come on! Uh, 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 come on! I
2: really want? Uh, 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 I really want? DMX. Uh, uh, uh,
0: My two songs that I remember from high school were Bring 'em Out. T-I. Mm. Oh, yeah yeah, hey. yeah, yeah. And DMX and Swizz Beats, get it on the floor. Yes.
1: Get it yes. on the floor. That's not a get hype song. That's a, that's a jiggy, let's go to the, a school dance kind of song, not a <laughs> let's tear their fucking heads off kind of song, right? But that was a big joint at the time that I was in high school, too, Maze. Obviously, we were in high school at the same time, but yeah. Also, as far as a get get hype song, but a different kind of get hype. Get hype before before you're about to go out. What this bitch is, mom? Ha ha ha.
2: <laughs>
1: oh and man. Like Hype
2: yeah. like- yourself <laughs> up to try to hit on at least 10 women and have maybe
0: one of them ever give you their phone number. Brenda, Felicia, about three kills. What about this one? Victory. I mean that one yeah that might be the king for me is
2: and that's still one of the songs that get played at every sporting event before the game like victory is a big before a big game, that's that song is
0: amazing. This one's weird, but I feel like it has the right beat for for basketball layup lines is uh breaking neck by Busta. Mm. That would play. That Again, would play.
1: Uh, that would definitely be part of the playlist. I don't feel like tearing somebody's head off to that. it just a, I just manic. I feel like But see, but it's Busta though. It's buster yeah. that's providing the energy not the yeah. actual
2: track the track is not providing the energy but busters you know he's he's energy
0: i remember lebron i think in 2012 like you walk into the locker room and he had he had control of the ipod you never knew what he was going to play but i remember distinctly realizing that we were the same age when he just played get rich or die trying what up gangster was like blasting like the whole locker room was shaking how loud lebron was playing and i was like yep that song of all of them, to me, gets me more hype. That song is crazy. Murray got hit, and this is going to be Golden State Ball. Oh, no. And Murray's no. down and hurt. Oh, my goodness. Oh, no. Just saw the news that Jamal Murray, he went down in the late, late fourth quarter last night against the Warriors. Jamal Murray tore his ACL. It's been confirmed. Just sucks. Just sucks. Denver Nuggets were on this upswing after the Aaron Gordon trade, and Jamal Murray had one of the best scoring runs in playoff history against Donovan Mitchell and, and the Jazz last year. I don't know. I kind of felt like Denver was a sexy contender pick in the last like couple weeks after the trade, and a lot of it had to do with Jamal Murray. He got hurt with his right knee, and he was out for four games, but as Nikola Jokic mentioned— That was their fifth game in seven nights Hmm. and they had to go and play Steph. So Jamal Murray has to, after being out for four games with a sore right knee, has to go out and guard Steph and play 40 minutes because the rest of the team has just run ragged. Without 34 minutes into his game last night, his other knee gave out. It sucks. But what does this mean for the Denver Nuggets this season?
2: It's crazy because before this injury, you know, I seen Denver as a formidable foe to anybody, whether out West or if they were blessed enough to get to the finals that they would give anybody hell is that outside of Brooklyn, I thought they had the most reliable half court offense, right? Like in a playoff setting, their team is the one that I counted on to get buckets in an efficient way against anybody. Right between the Jokic two man game with with Murray specifically, and Murray's just ability to attack you in a multitude of ways, like he had finally gotten to the point where he was hoisting a bunch of threes because it wasn't last year, but like the year before that, he refused to launch the threes for whatever reason, and he finally got to a point where he got his three point volume up, and as you know, Tom, he's. Going to attack you off the dribble, or if he's open, like you're toast, right? And so, obviously, we know what Jokic does on offense. He's clearly probably the front runner for MVP right now based on his insane offense. So, I'm like, look, man, this is the most potent offense outside of Brooklyn in the NBA. And so, I think they're going to give people problems in the playoffs because people are going to have a hard time stopping them. And they've shown that they could be competent on defense. But now, your offense ain't going to be unstoppable anymore can i throw this out there yeah not concerned (laughs) you think they're still going to be amazing on offense
1: if there was one thing that they could afford to take a dink on it's offense right they've got more than enough offense right but more importantly if there was one position it's like oh shit jamal murray went down oh well, I guess Will Barton's gonna have to shoot more, and he hates doing that. Like, right? <laughs> Will Barton? This what Will Barton was born for. Is like, well, you you need someone to get you buckets. See, Michael Porter Jr. too. Michael Porter Jr. Uh, <laughs> hell, even Aaron Gordon, who like through the first couple of games has been kind of like a let me just get in where I fit in guy. Now you can lean on him offensively more. So I feel like, I mean, I'm not trying to say they're better without Jamal Murray. Obviously, that's ridiculous. But if there was any position that they could survive. A setback injury-wise, too? It's that position, man. They got plenty of perimeter players to, to plug and play right there. Are they as good as Jamal Murray? Probably not, but good enough as long as Nikola Jokic keeps playing the way he's playing, which is MVP caliber.
0: I mean, it's crazy to think this season how many times we've had the discussion of, like, now it's time to show he's the real MVP. <laughs> right? <laughs> like we said it with LeBron when AD went out. Like right. KD or James Harden when the other one was out. It's like, they're carrying this team without the other superstar. Like Jokic, when we talk about Jamal Murray and offensively, like when Jokic is essentially the primary creator on that offense, then you got Michael Porter Jr., I mean, Capuzzo, like, I don't know what he's going to bring. If he's if he's going to do anything, it's going to be defense. Like, just be an asshole defensively. Baku. I mean, he's a, a wizard with the ball passing, but they don't need that with Jokic, right? Like, he was going to be a leader in the second unit if Jokic went to the bench and they needed a point guard to, like, facilitate and create. And now he's stepping up uh, in, in Jamal Murray's role. But again, that's going to go to Will Barton. The, but the MVP discussion just got a whole lot more interesting with, with this injury because I think that in a dark way – I think this can give more support for Jokic's candidacy if they don't lose a whole lot here.
1: Flip side. I feel this was the moment that separates all the people who at the end of the bubble, said Jamal Murray is going to be an all-star next year. And those of us are like, uh, right? Like this is the moment. Cause if you're a, of the people like, Oh my God, Jamal Murray. Oh my God, the nuggets. That's how you're going to react. And if you're me or if you're like me, I'm like, all right, so they lost a the gunner, man. They've got, like, three more. It's all right. But, see, for me, though, I know they're going to be fine for the rest of the
2: regular season. They're not. The team's not going to fall apart. They're going to win a bunch of games because they still have Jokic. But I think in the playoffs, what he was doing in the bubble, like, the one-on-one stuff was a revelation. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Maybe we could say that he, he he couldn't replicate that, this playoffs. Maybe we could say it was a fluke. All right, but, like, what he did— against single coverage in the playoffs last year was was crazy. And we know in the playoffs you're going to need that, right? And so I don't know that the guys that they have left are going to be great at executing that, except for Yokichu, again, if you guard him with one guy, he's going to freaking destroy you. We'll see. I think in the regular season they'll be fine, but I think this does affect their ability to be successful in the playoffs.
0: I mean, keep in mind, LeBron's gotten hurt this season. AD got hurt. Jamal Murray tore his ACL. Giannis is banged up. Jimmy Butler was banged up earlier this season with a knee injury. These are all the last four teams standing in the bubble.
2: Nick the nuts.
0: They had a quick turnaround this offseason and they get right back into the season. And I think that's something to note is that a lot of these injuries are happening, maybe more anecdotal than anything right now. But I can't ignore the fact that like the Knicks and the Hornets and the Hawks, all these teams who weren't in the bubble last year, falling out this year. (laughs) And then the teams at the top who went deep into the bubble playoffs, they're banged up. They're playing under their potential. And even before Anthony Davis got hurt, he wasn't playing great. Which brings me to my next topic here was before the season with our guy Ethan Strauss, Amin and I, we decided to take over-unders on three teams, like pick three teams that you feel most confident about the under or the over and one of my unders was the Brooklyn Nets. So I am <laughs> diametrically opposed to you, sir, because I pick the Warriors to over and the Nets under. So here we go. You, you totally agree with me, right?
2: Look, without the Harden trade, the Nets pick was brilliant because we knew guys were definitely going to miss games. It was going to take, take them a little bit of time to figure out the, the quote unquote chemistry, et cetera, et cetera. So that was a brilliant pick. I think your Warriors pick was not brilliant because <laughs> I happen to be somebody who thought they were not going to be good this year for for the reasons that we've already seen. Right. Like, yes, Steph is brilliant. Steph is all time great. I think Steph is as good as he's ever been in his whole career right now. He's just he's Freaking amazing, but the rest is like really. We we we're counting on Kelly Oubre and and Andrew Wiggins to be the cogs of some team that's supposed to win. Mm. You know the functional equivalent of forty eight to fifty games in a normal season. I'm like, why? Mm. Why do we think that they've never done that before? I know Steph is amazing, but these guys have never proven to be that. And we knew they were going to be committed to playing Wiseman who's a rookie, who we knew he can't be good just by virtue of him being a rookie. So like all of those things, I'm like, how is this team supposed to be amazing? And then, of course, there's going to be the inevitable Steph injury break. And this team cannot win without Steph Curry. This team is Orlando without Steph Curry. So, like, I just thought they weren't, like, it, it was going to be almost impossible for them to have a successful season.
0: I just bow at the altar of Steph.
2: Respectfully, I get that.
0: 37 and a half? 37 and a half this season, so that would have been, like, basically 500 for for the 72-game season. Like, just a little, maybe one or two games over 500. Like, if Steph and Draymond are healthy, and I know that's a big variable there, I just think Steph would have been totally unfiltered this season. And Steve Kerr and the organization would be like, Steph, you didn't play last year, basically. Go out and be the best that you can be. And then they're trying to incorporate Kelly Oubre and Wiggins and Wiseman. And Steph, I think, gotten in his own head, or whether it's the coaching staff, telling him, like, we got to develop these guys. We got to work off the ball. And they don't play. They don't have basketball IQ to work Steph off the ball. Get him the ball. And now you're seeing, like, when those two guys are off the floor, Oubre and Wiseman, they're both injured. Like, Steph is completely uninhibited by all that shit. <laughs> and he's just like, I'm going to go out and drop. The last two games, 15 threes and 18 three-point attempts. That's what I expected was.
2: I did Andy Lou and Sam's show the one night, and I was like, look, I know you guys want Steph to have the ball more and up his usage, all of that stuff. I'm like, to what end, though? To get the seed, like we want him to play harder than Houston ball for what? <laughs> what do we get out of this, honestly? And that's why I understand why Kerr is handling it this way. It's like, really, we're doing this in service of winning 51% of our games? We're just going to wear Steph down to the nub to be a 500 team? Like, what? what's the point of that? That's that's my question. Philosophically, like, why should I play him more than 36 minutes a game in the minutes that he plays? He's going to be Steph and he's going to be an MVP caliber player. But like I'm playing this guy 40 minutes a night. I'm doing the whole, you know, up your usage to Westbrook level when he won the MVP and to do what for what? (laughs)
0: I just think there's so much money left on the table. That's fair. You're leaving money on the table when Steph is taking like eight threes a game or whatever it is. And like, hey, just run high pick and rolls with Draymond and Loon 40 feet away from the basket and no one can guard you. Pull up from three, whatever it is. Take 23s a game. I still think that Steph should be taking 23s a game. 20. Guess what? I got a fever. And the only prescription is more cowbell. (laughs) This dude is effectively 63% shooter on threes, on pull up threes. You're never saying "Hey, 63%. We don't want those. If you can get a layup 20 times a game, you're doing that. (laughs) You're doing that. And I know maybe the counter is, Hey, it's, it's, it's grueling. It's tiring to like have to shoot 23s a game. I'm like, Running off the ball to death, like off the ball stuff, like that's tiring too.
2: I
1: mean, you want Steph to do to do his hearted impression? No, I want the Warriors to play at the Warriors play, like they're supposed to play. And watching when certain people are on the floor versus not on the floor, <laughs> it's so pronounced and it's just like, you don't get it, man. And, yeah. and and there's nothing worse than someone who doesn't get it. I think about Ubre particularly, but they asked Steve Kerr about, hey, how do you feel about Oubre coming back next year? As You know, he's a free agent this summer. And and Steve was like, I'd love to have him back. We love what he brings to the table. Da, 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 and I can envision like a starting lineup of Steph, Clay, Wiggins, Draymond, Wiseman, and then Oubre being our sixth man. And Ubre kind of bristled at that and said, I, I'm not a bench player. and apparently some unnamed player in the warriors locker room said to the team in front of Ubre, like not behind his back said andre godala was finals mvp and was coming off the bench (laughs) who the fuck is kelly Ubre? i'll tell you who he is he's a guy who doesn't get it Hmm. like if you come here and you see how they do everything and how they like to play and your main takeaway is like i'm not a bench player it's just like this isn't a fit man like go play loser basketball in Sacramento, get paid a lot of money <laughs> and feel much better about yourself. And, and and that's cool. But like in terms of the way the Warriors should play and the way that I enjoy watching them play, that guy's not a good fit. And I think that's the reality. When people say we want to play like the Warriors, the big reason why you can't is not because we don't have enough shooters. It's because you don't have enough guys who know how to play and are willing to play that way.
0: That's why I like Bayes in that lineup because Baze is just like, yeah, I'm going to get the ball to Steph. <laughs> like that's my job out here is just get the ball to Steph. Well, <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, yeah, I guess a lot of guys don't understand that Steph basically the ball leaving his hands is always the best option, right? Like it's there are very few bad Steph Curry shots no shot can be bad because this guy can make shots from everywhere. So if you don't have that understanding, because you know, one, you never played with somebody like Steph and two, you just don't think of having a teammate that way. um, And, and not understanding that the threat of what Steph does is how you're going to be able to get busy. And Basically, the defense knowing that you're willing to look, him, look for him, that's, that's what's going to get the reactions, right? Like there's certain guys where I don't have to react when Steph does all of that stuff because this fool ain't passing it. So the defense can behave in such a way that it's, it makes the, the Warriors easy to guard. But when you have all guys who are willing to find people and the defense has to be conscious of, damn, I don't know if he's going to try to shoot it or pass it. I remember I was watching something with Hubie Brown and he said, what's the point of a pick and roll? It's to make the defense think. It's to make them react. It's to make them have to consider multiple options, right? And when you're
0: taking away the option of giving the ball up, <laughs> that makes you easier to guard. That's just this is life. What about the Nets? How are you feeling about Kyrie, James Harden, KD? <sighs> so oh, man,
2: when the trade happened, I, I remember at first being like, eh, this is going to be tough. I don't know.
0: Tough like in a good way or tough in a, like a bad way? No, like, like this. Is, this might not work.
2: And then it just took me one day, and I was just like, "Wait, they're gonna let James Harden run pick and roll at the top of the key with KD, Joe Harris, and Kyrie flanking him? <laughs> this is over. What are we even thinking about? It is, it's over. Like, it's over. It's fucking this team. You're not gonna be able to stop this team. This, it's over. And I was just like, "Look, they're gonna score too much for anybody in the East. But I think." You know, I thought at the time, depth-wise, that they would have trouble. They reminded me honestly of the heat of 2010-11. Like you got your top end guys, and then it's a bunch of Carlos Arroyos and freaking Big Z. Joel yeah. Anthony and Mike Bibby who was cooked and vampire And and Dexter vampire. Pittman and and you know, it was just it was it was a clown show. Let's let's face it, right? So I'm like, maybe in the finals. They're gonna have trouble against the Lakers, who did it last year. They do have that, you know, whatever chemistry you want to call it, um, and they and they can guard, right? And but AD at the five, like defensively, they're so versatile. When you have that guy playing five man for you, I thought they could probably string together enough stops um, between that and Brooklyn's lack of depth that they, you know, they could take them. Now, I don't see how you could pick anybody that is in Brooklyn. To be honest with you, I just feel like they are the clear favorite so long as those three guys are playing at a reasonably healthy.
0: Now, you could have just stopped at saying if those guys are playing. If they're playing,
2: they are the favorite to me.
0: Like if you could guarantee me that those three guys are going to play throughout the playoffs, like I think they're the favorite.
2: They have to be. From the way Harden is play, and then I like, I kind of like the sort of superstar buy-in of each other. Meaning, when Kyrie just comes out and says, "No, James is the point guard," like he just says it, right, and everybody understands. No, James is the one who's going to conduct this whole thing. He, he he he's running the show, and everybody's accepted that this is the best option for us to win because James is our best playmaker. And not that he's just our best playmaker. He's one of the best fucking playmakers in the league. So we should give him the space to do that. So I think the buy-in from the guys themselves is why I'm like, man, this is going to work. But then when guys are taking PTOs because people were mean to them on the court, that then I start to say, who knows? It just
0: feels so explosive. You talking about Blake Griffin here, wise, or who are you, are you talking about? Here? Uh, no,
2: we're talking about Kyrie. Kyrie took a
0: PTO. <laughs> he took a freaking i I'm like, yo. I know. I'm messing with you.
2: We had Sarah Kustak on Hoops and Jason, and I was like, how does Kyrie have so many vacation days? Do, do, do the Nets give you that many vacation days? I've never seen this before. She was like, look, they're winning. His teammates are cool with it then it is what it is, right? But it's
1: just, come on, bro. You guys don't think it's strange what this guy's been doing all season? Shout out to Sarah, man. She's great. Yeah, she's she's the GOAT. Let me ask you guys a question about this, though. Isn't this why it works? Mm. Because you never have to have three of them at the same time or you got to worry about like <laughs> shots or touches or any of that shit? Like, there's always one who's not there. And it's like Kyrie's been gracious enough to volunteer a bunch of times not to be the guy not there.
0: I volunteer as tribute. Uh, I believe we have a volunteer.
1: That's why they love him.
0: Yeah, in this schedule too. I mean, in this schedule, if he takes one game off, it's not like he's out for a week. It's like he takes one game off and it's just an off day. And then they, he plays the next night. And that's the thing that with this schedule, I mean, is like Denver had five games and seven nights in the fifth game Jamal Murray goes down. They have two more of those sets the rest of the year. Yeah. Two more. <laughs> and so when LeBron's coming back, when AD's coming back, when KD came back, when James Harden came back, like they have to ramp up after not playing for a while. And then they got to play back to 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 back. And so I just worry that, as we always say on the show, I mean – What is the best predictor of injury? Prior injury. So that's what I'm nervous about, Waz, is like when Mm. you talk about the hamstring injuries from KD and and Harden. And I know when you talk about championship contenders, no one wants to talk about injuries, but that's what I'm saying is like you have to factor this in.
2: Yeah, Kyrie's been an injured guy. Forever. He feels like he's always injured. Since college. The first freaking Cavs run to the finals. He couldn't play in the finals. And on and on. Boston, he missed playoffs.
1: On and on and on and on. It goes. College, he played 11 games. And then he came out. Then in the pros, his first season, he played 51 out of 66 games. His second season, 59 out of 82. His third season, 71 out of 82. His fourth season, 75 out of 82 then 53, then 72, then 60, then 67, then 20. And this year, 38 out of 53. So availability is not a strong suit for this guy. No. Ever. Ever. But the funny thing is we talk about AD as being like this fragile, unreliable guy. In reality, he's missed a lot less time in just about the same amount of seasons of service Than Kyrie, 100%. I don't think KD and James
2: and the rest are just themselves going to be able to get it done. I do think they need Kyrie to ultimately win the championship because you can have your two one-on-one killers, your two individual killers, but against the best defenses, I don't think that's going to be enough. I just don't. And I don't know. See, like... KD has basically looked like himself in the regular season, but it's a whole different ask in a playoff atmosphere when, again, you're playing against the best defenses in the league and they're trying to get you to do the stuff that you don't want to do. It's a completely different proposition in the playoffs, and it's way harder. Obviously, that goes without saying. So, again, coming off the Achilles, I know it looks good in the regular season. I know it looks good in the regular season, but, like, I remember the last three games of the Warriors series in 2016. It was tough. You know, not to say that KD was bad, but, like, he wasn't, you know, silky, smooth, effortless, able to do whatever he wanted. Those last three games were a slog for him. And I think part of part of that is why he goes on Bill Simmons and says, you know, I went to Golden State because I never want to see a double team again.
1: That's a good, pretty good place to go. <laughs>
0: <Yeah>. <laughs> Keep in mind, in that whole Brooklyn speech you just gave, not a word is about defense. So where are you on that?
2: I think they're going to scrape by. It doesn't matter. I don't think it matters. I think they're going to scrape by. I think because, man, it was a Clippers game that they had back in. It had to be like January at this point, or February. You know, it was a really close game, and it came down to the possessions. And I watched them execute their switching defense and help where they could and recovered where they needed to in the biggest moments of the game. And they did it against the Clippers, who's— Pretty damn good offense. And I was like, look, if they could string together just as much of these types of possessions a game, which to me just really comes down to trying. I know that doesn't sound smart or genius, but like really just like concentrating and trying. (laughs) Like, I think they're going to get to enough defense to get it done. So just like the Lakers last year in the reverse in offense, where people were concerned trolling about their, their offense. And I'm like, dudes. Like, teams are freaking packing the paint against these guys. And, yes, Kyle Kuzma and the Morris twin, they're not great shooters at all. But when you're packing it in so much to stop Bron and AD and these shots are wide-ass open, I'm sorry, I think they'll make enough of those to win, and they ultimately did,
1: right? People like, Rondo's making threes. He was taking practice threes. I think Waz is the difference between... Can I get one person to be good enough offensively on this one day?
2: One day, that's it.
1: Versus can I get a whole team to lock in defensively (laughs) on this one day? I think that's a different proposition. That's a different animal there, yeah. And adding to the degree of difficulty is it's not like you don't have guys who can get stops. They do. But who's sitting? (laughs) Who's not going to play so I could place this guy who's going to get a stop? That's the other problem. Because you got three guys, and that's why I've said, like, in a weird way, the injuries and the absences have helped them because they don't have to worry about that, about, like, balancing lineups or telling someone no, which is the big thing. They talk about NBA players, when you get rich, the first thing you got to learn is how to say no because all your friends and family are going to come around. Can I borrow some money? I want to start this business, da, da, da. You know who doesn't have to worry about having to say no? Broke, motherfuckers. If I'm always kind of on the cusp of being broke, I never have to learn how to say no. The moment I have riches, now i got to hurt somebody's feelings. That's kind of what the Nets are like. Right now, they don't have all their riches, so the proposition of saying no is not a difficult one. I don't have to say no. He's already out. He's already tapped out. He's not coming. But there's going to come a day, if they're all healthy, where we're in a game And man, I need some stops and I got to get Bruce Brown out there. And Kyrie, you really are the one who's giving us the least this day. Or maybe KD, you're really not moving well, right? And I got to get Claxton out there because we're getting killed on the glass. That's the day where the job gets hard. I don't disagree with you. I think Steve Nash politically
2: has to make the bet that his three superstars are going to score at such a ridiculous rate that he can justify leaving them out there. I I I I just think uh oh, he's wavering. He's wavering. When you're pop, right, you can pick situations where you don't want to play Tony or Manu in a big spot because you're pop, right? I don't know if Steve has got that. Yeah. T-
1: I don't know if he has t- Combination that Steve doesn't have the clout yet as a coach. And yeah. these guys ain't Manu and Tony. They're not. That's not their disposition. Temperamentally, they're not. The reason that why they're in Brooklyn is because they ain't want to be told what to do. <laughs> <laughs> At the end of the day. They like, just want to hoop.
2: Right. They just yeah. Wanna- <laughs> it's going to be interesting.
1: I don't think it's going to
2: be a kick. And also, too, this is the thing. Like, because i think their matchups against the e- the eastern conference field makes it so that i just don't see anybody beating them that's why i think they're the favorite they're like other than like other than the lakers and the clippers and utah like the impediments to them to get to the finals are so much greater than brooklyn so brooklyn has it like they're going to be there so i got to make them the favorite
0: <laughs> how many guards in the east are you thinking, man, if they do a switch and Lamarcus Aldridge has to switch out to this point guard or this guard, that guy is going to cook? Like, how many of those guys are in the East? Who's the guy? It's like Jimmy Butler, okay?
2: Jimmy. Jimmy's it, though. That's it. It's not Giannis, because we know Giannis is not really a guard or a wing or whatever. It's not Giannis. It's not Drew Holiday. <laughs> it's not Ben Simmons. Damn sure not Tobias Harris. It's not any of those guys. It's not Chris Middleton. It's not any of those guys. Like, there's nobody who even, like, say, if LaMarcus Aldridge got switched out to Donovan Mitchell. I'm like, that's a problem for you, sir. Devin Booker, that's a problem for you, sir. Steph. Steph. Oh, my God. (laughs) Damn CJ, like, you having to switch out on those guys, you're you're toast. I I don't see that guy in the East, honestly, to make the Nets pay for having such a soft, inflexible defense.
1: What, you don't think? Philly like Embiid would make them pay? If the
2: bet is Embiid is just gonna face up and post me and bludgeon me to death from two and I and and in the half court specifically, and I'm Brooklyn and I get to play both in transition, even though Harden's been playing like Chris Paul lately with the with the freaking walk the ball up. But theoretically, I can beat you in transition, and I'm insane from three, and I got guys that are getting me to the line all day. Ah, Come on, man. Joel by himself, like, I I just, it's just not, that's not scary enough.
1: I look at Philly, I don't think Philly's the best team in the East, but I think they're uniquely qualified to give the Nets problems because A, the Nets got to guard them on the other end, and B, it's the only team where, all right, like Ben Simmons is 6'10 and great defensively. Nobody's guarding KD, but right. if I had to choose right. from all the guys in the league, he'd be one of the top two or three, right, that we'd pick. And to
2: me, I'd pick my number one would definitely be Giannis or A D, honestly. Number one is A D for K D, honestly. Um it would be A D, healthy A D. Of course. Everything I say here has to come with that caveat. Uh, but you know, I've heard people mention the Bucks as the strongest contender because the Bucks. I mean, Drew Holiday, Chris Middleton, and Giannis present amazing.
1: <laughs> I just saw your text. <laughs> I was like, really? Am I saying this shit too crazy? Am I crazy right now? Let me know. Let me know. Those three guys on the Bucs present the best,
2: you know, defensive front as far as one-on-one type of isolation defense on the perimeter, which I tend to agree with. But I just, I don't know. There's something about the Bucs that I
1: just doesn't feel right to me. I've seen them do different things this year that has given me some hope. Like, oh, maybe this year will be different. Then there was that game where Giannis took like a 20-footer to win the game. He caught the ball at half court and dribbled up to the 20-footer shot it, and everybody on the Bucks was like, yeah, we like that shot. I'm like, oh, fuck y'all, man. I can't, I can't put my my trust in people who refuse to accept a very core tenant, which is that's not a good shot for you guys, and it's definitely not a good shot for him. It's
2: not good offense. This idea that Giannis should be trying to create in the biggest
1: possessions of the game from 30 feet, what? That's what they drew up. They drew up, and you go to catch it all the way over there. And then something's going to happen, and then we're going to win the game.
2: And that's why I wasn't crazy about the Drew Holiday deal, because I'm like, this doesn't really change the context of what y'all do. Drew Holiday isn't a jitterbug no. facilitator. He's a combo guard, essentially. So so that means Giannis is going to be creating from the perimeter, isolating in your biggest
1: possessions in the postseason, and that's poison to me. Uh, is it personality? Do you think there's... Let me ask you this: Do you think if they did things different, like really did things differently, same people in the, in that room, but just did things differently, they would be way better? Yeah, yeah. I agree. Because I don't think it's like, oh shit, if we have only we had Chris, Chris Paul, let's play a game. All right, mm. on the count of three, name your favorite dinosaur. Don't even think about it. Just name it. Ready? One, two, three. Velociraptor. Velociraptor.
0: Favorite non-pornographic magazine to masturbate to. Good Good housekeeping. housekeeping. If you were a chick, who's the one guy you would sleep with? John John Samos. Samos. What? Did we just become best
2: friends? Yep. Or Kyle Lowry. I honestly think Lowry would have been a better fit for what they're trying to do than Drew Holiday is. I get Drew's younger. He's better at what they specifically need, right? Which is sort of an organization of an offense that isn't centered around your freaking... We get it. I remember when Jason Kidd let Giannis do point Giannis and I honestly think that made him better as like an overall player, that he has that in his toolkit. Like I get that. But he's a finisher. He's not an initiator, man. Like, he's a finisher. Yeah. And put him in position to finish off plays.
1: And you and I, and they haven't done that. And so, you know, good luck. What are your thoughts on the Atlanta Hawks? Just continue to soar high ever since switching coaches. I mean,
2: I feel bad for Lloyd Pierce because I think a lot of it is that they just got healthier. I don't think Lloyd Pierce was just stinking up the joint. But at the same time, if... Your best guy was so clearly not seeing eye to eye with this dude. You had to do what you had to do. And Nate McMillan is proven to be a competent NBA coach, if if nothing else. Right. Right. So I, I'm not surprised when Bogey comes back and Gallinari's finally playing and they still don't have Hunter back yet. And he was playing, he was lighting stuff up when he was playing. So I'm not surprised when they got their guys back that they've looked
1: good. You know, I thought they were gonna look good this year. I'm a I'm a Trey Young apologist. Like I love Trey Young. I just saw this news story. I saw last night Luka Doncic was criticizing the play-in tournaments. Why are we doing this? And shit like that. And so the headline is Mark Cuban says play-in tournament plan is an enormous mistake. And I was like, damn, Mark. You're just going to piggyback on your star and double down on like this thing is, isn't good. By the way, the Doncic quote is, I don't understand the idea of a play-in. You play 72 games to get into the playoffs. Then maybe you lose two in a row and you're out of the playoffs. So I don't see the point of that. <laughs> Mark Cuban... He goes completely opposite. He says, I get why the NBA is doing it, but if we're going to be creative because of COVID, we should go straight up one through 20 and let the bottom four play in. This is the year particularly since the 10 games cut from the 82-game schedule we're in conference. Like He's like, no, we need more. I got to have more cowbells, baby. Let's turn the league into one huge play. And I'm like, what the fuck is he talking about, man? This guy's amazing. That's great. Shout out to Tim McMahon, who adds this note. The NBA Board of Governors, which includes Cuban, unanimously approved the proposed to implement playing tournament for this season. <laughs> Cuban, in hindsight, this approach is an enormous mistake. That hindsight is because they're in the seventh seed right now. Oh, my goodness. That's so funny. I think they're starting to feel that heat, baby. They're starting to feel like, oh, shit, we're two games back of Portland, and they've been hurt this whole time? <laughs> was any any reaction to mark cuban i think it's
2: hilarious i think the owners probably just see the play-in as some kind of financial benefit of course if cuban is coming out and defending it it's probably because there's money in it always money in a banana stand everything that happens in the nba essentially happens for money not that that's a right or wrong thing that's the reality of what the league is and so you know the cuban thinks they can make more money with more planes than i i expect him to stump for it (laughs) that's his job as an owner
1: (laughs) here's my thing if dallas was the nine seed right now do you think they'd be complaining about the plane of course not (laughs) or if they were the three seed would they be talking about it of course not literally this is one of those it just impacts you because you are the one that hey man if the rules are normal we'd be fine but the rules ain't normal. We ain't fine no more. I'm just like, come on, man. Don't don't make it that thinly veiled. Anyways, I think that's gonna do it for us here on the Haber. I don't know what the fuck happened to Tom. Thanks a lot, Big Waz. Yes, sir. Ladies and gentlemen, as we bid adieu to Waz, I just want to say right now, Tom just sent me a screenshot of his speed test. He's at a .59 download and a 1.25 upload. Ladies and gentlemen, that, that's not good for podcasting. That's not internet. That's time.
2: Not-